May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Good morning, everybody. We are continuing to preach through the book of Romans, and we're going section by section, verse by verse. This is both a gift and a challenge, and primarily because you cannot skip over sections that are uncomfortable, uh, or you cannot disregard things you would rather not say. Um, And I find that the basic claim in the passage that you just heard contains Uh, the claim itself, it's so surprising. As I really sat and thought about it this week, I I frankly kind of find it hard to believe is in the Bible. Have you heard that expression, um, if God did not exist, it would be necessary to invent him? Well, if what's said here did not exist, trust me, no Christian would find it necessary to invent it. So I'm going to work through the passage today under three headings, futile religion, unavoidable judgment, and lost coastlines. First, futile religion. Commentators, you know, look at the 16th chapter book of the Romans, and they break it up into little subunits, right? And there's always a little bit of debate exactly how to organize it. But most folks are united in thinking of the section that we're in now. Uh, It starts in chapter 1, verse 18, and goes through the majority of chapter 3. They think of that as a discrete unit with a very defined purpose. And the purpose of the section that we are in is that Paul, who wrote the letter, is shining a light on the human condition and saying, in essence, the enemy is everywhere, right? That there is this power that is sin, that reigns universally. And what sin does is make us strangers to ourselves, makes us strangers to one another. It tears human society apart, and it locks human beings into opposition with God. And uh, at the beginning of this subunit, and this is what Peter covered last week, Paul reflects on human experience in general, right? People all over the world who, for one reason or another, find themselves in a situation where though they know the truth about God in some rudimentary way, what Paul says is that it's woven into the structure of reality. So though they know something about the truth, he says they suppress it, and the 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 bitter pill of last week's message is that God gives people up to their own immorality, to their own violence, to their own greed. And that is a sobering, heavy message. Uh, But I want to say it's somewhat explicable. Like, we don't need to be convinced that human beings left to themselves can do bad things to each other and to themselves, right? But what Paul does here in chapter 2 is flip the script and address not the world at large or people in general, but he addresses specifically his hearers, his audience, the church in Rome. He says, you, did you catch that? Second person singular, you, um, dear listener, you who just heard that catalog of human depravity at the end of chapter 1, you are guilty of doing the exact same things. You see, Paul knew that this letter was not going to be read and studied by individuals like we engage with the Bible. It was going to be read aloud to a gathered community. And a gathered community, a small minority of Christians who had chosen to follow Jesus, often at great cost to themselves. They were a community, I want to say, who tried. 
People who tried to follow God, people who tried to study the Bible, who tried to pray, who tried to use the tools that God has given us to mark themselves as the people of God. And what Paul knew is that this community would find it very easy to hear his explanation of the sins of people out there and say to themselves, shame, those people, right? They drink too much. They sleep around. They do shameful things with their body. I am so glad I am not like them. And Paul says, wait a minute. You who pass judgment on those people are guilty of the exact same things. When I say it's surprising, this claim, that is what I find surprising. I know this is an exhortation from another era, but that same things, that phrase is worth underlining or highlighting or circling in your Bible. How can that be? How can it be that this community is guilty of the same things that Paul indicts the the Gentile or the non-Jesus people world of? How can that be? You know, if you were paying attention as Peter read the passage, uh, Paul uses the phrase a few times, you who pass judgment. And at first I thought, well, maybe they are guilty of passing judgment, as if to say, Paul is indicting them for a very specific sin. They're judgmental, they're critical. And of course, this has immediate persuasion because we all know what it's like for religious people to be judgmental or to be critical. Um, you know, they were, maybe they were stepping into God's place and judging others, which in and of itself is a form of idolatry. And I, I do believe that's true in general, but I don't think that's what's going on here. As if to say, it's not judgmentalism in and of itself that's the problem. If that were the problem, we could imagine a scenario where a Christian community refrains from being particularly judgmental and is thereby spared the the critique that Paul makes in this text. I think, quite frankly, that's the situation that we're in. I don't experience Church of the Cross as a particularly judgmental community. Are we off the hook? No, you're not. No, I'm just kidding. But I think what is being challenged here is, is not judgmentalism in particular. I think what Paul is saying is something that's much more basic, something that's more radical. And by that, I mean something that's at the root of the problem that we, those of us who consider ourselves religious people, experience all the time. You know, I don't know, I do, and there's a lot of debate over exactly who Paul is addressing in this chapter. Is it Gentile converts? Is it Jewish converts? But ultimately, I, for our purposes, I don't think it makes a difference. Again, these are people who are trying to do the God thing. And what Paul says to them is, look, whenever you chastise people out there, you are condemning yourself because you are guilty of doing the same things. How can that be? How can that be? Well, one of the uh, clues, I think, that we can use to discern what's going on here is that word that Paul uses. I know you don't have verse numbers, but it's at the end of the first paragraph of the text that you have. He is describing his audience, and he says, your hearts are unrepentant, but particularly, he says, you are characterized by stubbornness. Now, stubbornness for us is like a disagreeable personality trait, right? But in the Bible, stubbornness is an almost technical word to describe the heart that's not responsive to the things of God. And the the Greek word stubbornness 
is, uh, is where we get our medical term sclerosis, which just illustrates that it has to do with the hardening, right? You know, multiple sclerosis is like the hardening of tissue. So remembering who Paul is talking to, I think what he's saying is something like this. Romans, you are very intent on following the rules. That's a good thing. And you are availing yourself of the tools that God has given you to mark yourselves as God's people. Again, that's a good thing. But if you just stop there, you have not arrived at what God is after. Because it is very possible to do all the religious practices in the world and for your heart to remain stubborn. For your soul to remain hardened and not responsive to the things of God. Because if that is what God is really after, then religious practices in and of themselves, it's like bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's just the wrong tool, right? Um, We, in order to be the people that God really wants us to be, you know, of course our agency is important, but in order for us to be the people that God really wants us to be, in order for us to live the life that God really wants us to live, then we need God to do it. We need daily miracles where God breaks through our agency and makes possible for us that which is not possible in and of ourselves. Now you might be like, that's fairly obvious. (laughs) You know, and fair enough, fair enough. But I think it's worth stressing. Now I do want to say, you know, it's possible, like, if you were raised in the evangelical industrial complex, you might have heard this phrase, you know, it's about relationship, not religion, right? You can like, make this kind of facile critique of religion. But that is what we are left with, right? That is like what we have to do. There's no such thing as a religionless form of Christianity. The Bible, worship, and our world, you know, holy communion, liturgy, that's just what we got to work with. And God does not change our lives, or God does not soften our hearts, or God does not do miracles, like, in a vacuum. And I don't think God expects us to just wait to be zapped, right? I think God expects us to do things. So I don't want to make it seem like religious practices that the Romans are maybe guilty of majoring on too much are in and of themselves a bad thing. What I want to say for this first point is, as we go about our religious lives and do the things that God asks us to do, is to to never forget whatever version or however you would word it, that prayer of come Holy Spirit, of Lord, renew in my life your grace and your power. Because I know that I will even use good things to warp and, and make myself feel better than I'm not so I can judge people out there. It's just a very simple prayer. Come Holy Spirit, whatever that looks like to you, Lord, renew my own soul. Make my soft heart soft. Um, without that, you know, that ver- some version of that prayer, our spiritual practices, are they're futile at worst, and they can be very dangerous. Futile at best, very dangerous at worst. Okay, that's point one. Uh, let's keep going. In the second paragraph of the text that you have, it's verses 6 through 11, Paul presses pause on the second person direct address. You show contempt for God's kindness. He presses pause on that, and he gives some more explanation as to why he is so set on deflating people's religious pretensions. And he says something that is very simple but very grave. 
and it is this. There is a day when all responsible people will stand before God and will face the judgment of God. And for people who do evil, who are self-seeking, Paul says there will be trouble and distress. And for people who do good, there will be honor and peace. But God will evaluate everyone, and his judgment will be impartial and fair. That is the, the claim, the truth, I believe, that Paul makes in the second half of our reading. Now, let me uh, get at, I think, what Paul is trying to do here. There, is a, um, there was a group of us on Wednesday night that joined Joe Ho in a five-week course that we just started last week. Y'all should join us on Wednesday night, where Joe's like walking us through different approaches to the book of Romans, not so much saying there was one way to read it, but there are different emphases that you can draw in, from the same text. And one of the things Joe said that was very simple, but I thought pretty helpful, was the reminder that Paul did not write this letter to convert a bunch of non-believers, right? He, and he's not trying to scare people into submission. What Paul is trying to do, you can almost, I think of the imagery of like a choir director. There are all these different ethnic groups, different people that are having a hard time like getting along, not just getting along in a high school sense, but are having a hard time coming together in meaningful ways. So like a choir director, Paul is trying to harmonize these different voices. And so what Paul is doing here, again, is he's trying to level the playing field. And he's addressing specifically people whose ethnic identity and perhaps whose religiosity makes them think they warrant special treatment before God. And Paul is saying, no, sir. There is only one thing that matters when you stand before God, and it's not your career, your net worth, your standing in the world, all of that stuff that is all passing away. What matters is whether you did good or did evil. That is the one thing that God cares about. And I think to kind of synthesize what he says in this chapter with what he says a couple chapters later about what theologians call justification by faith, I think what Paul is saying is that the most important thing in your life is whether you have laid hold of Jesus Christ by faith, whether the seeds of Jesus' peace and righteousness and joy have truly been planted in your soul. Because if they are, they will flower into attitudes and actions that are different than people who do not know Jesus. And it is therefore not inconsistent for Paul to say the manner in which you live your life does have eternal consequence. Because God really does care whether we do good or do evil with our bodies in the time that we reside on this planet. And those who do good, again, will be welcomed into eternal life. And those who do not, Paul uses four equally terrifying words, wrath, anger, trouble, and distress. Now, Paul does not get too metaphysical here. He does not develop in detail what that all entails. Uh, I, I do not know what that all entails. I do know I do not want any of it, right? Um, so, before we move on, hopefully to some gospel truth, I do just want to pause here and think about how what Paul says here, as difficult as it can be, aligns with the rest of the Bible. And specifically how what Paul says here can be likened to a direct 
commentary on the parables of Jesus. You guys remember the parable of the prodigal son, right? There's a father who has two sons, and those two sons are alienated from him in very different ways. This is a little cute, but just bear with me. The first son, the younger son, who squanders his inheritance with prodigal living, is kind of like the, what Peter talked about last week in Romans chapter 1. We all know what that is like. It's like the platonic ideal of sin. People who close down bars, people who vape, I'm just kidding, people who are just squander their lives in dissolute living. It's very easy for us, you know, I, we're not, I'm not saying we're all on the same religious plane, but you're all very moral, serious people. It's very easy to think of people like out there and think, oh my gosh, they're definitely missing it. But what's happening in Romans 2 is the older brother, people who are responsible, people who are earnest, people who are, uh, I think it's Enneagram type ones, right? People who just take morality very seriously. And in a religious context, take God very seriously. And Paul is saying, be careful. You're, you may not be any better off just because you take that stuff seriously. You might be guilty of the same things. So what Paul is teaching at my first point, I think directly aligns with what Jesus tells us about ways of being alienated from the Father. And then also this notion of, of judgment, judgment that is unavoidable. I could go to a lot of different places in the Gospels, but uh, I think of Jesus's final words in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, look, there are two ways to live your life. There are two ways to build your house, which is a metaphor for living your life. You can build it on the rock, which is putting my words into practice, not just like liking what I have to say, but putting it into practice. And if you do that, the winds will come, the streams will rise, the storms will emerge, but you will remain poised. You will be welcomed into eternal life, to use Paul's language. But if you do not put my words into practice, Paul's language, if you are self-seeking and if you are evil, then that is like building your house upon sand. And when the storms come, the waters rise and the winds blow, it will be destruction, trouble and distress, Paul would say. So this is an intense passage, but I don't think what Paul is doing here is different in spirit than what Jesus says about the importance of being reconciled to God through him and of living your life on the basis of his teachings. Okay, final thing I want to say, lost coastlines. Now that phrase is taken It's the title of, I think, my favorite song released in the year of our Lord, 2008. It is by a band called Ockerville River. Has anyone ever heard of Ockerville? They're from Austin, Texas. Brad Otts. Of course, you would would have heard of them. Look at this guy. Um, uh, It's a song about, um, I think it's a song about saying goodbye and a song about new beginnings. And it's a song that uses the metaphor of sailing to describe how disorienting it can be when you find yourself in a new place and you consult your maps and your guides and you realize, I have no idea where we are and I have no idea how to get home, right? And it's a metaphor for that kind of existential, like, where am I? Where am I going? And the reason why I bring up that song, the reason why I was reminded of that song this week is because if you put the last two Sundays, last Sunday and today, kind of together, this is not exactly what Peter was saying, but I think, uh, Peter did, I mean, I love what Peter said. I just mean like one way to read Romans, the end of Romans 1 and the beginning of Romans 2 is Paul closing off two very powerful resonant scripts to follow to achieve the good. And one of them you might say is like autonomy, be your own law, be yourself. And you will be so much freer and so much happier and more joyful if you just cast off the God thing and just do what you want. 
That's a very resonant, compelling cultural narrative. And I think what Paul says in Romans 1 is like, that does not end well. But in Romans 2, Paul says, neither does its mirror opposite, nor is just bare-knuckled, white-hot religiosity. Follow God's law, sinner. Paul says that too can alienate you from the Father. That too can leave you in a very dark, cold, terrible place. And so I think what that says to me is like, well, where do we go then? If, those, if autonomy and, you know, religiosity both lead somewhere that is not good, that's what the, the song was evocative of, like, where am I going then? And there is a disorienting freedom that follows, I believe, the life of discipleship. Because it's not just as simple as following the rules. It's not just as simple as do this and you will be blessed. There, it, it, there's a dizzying freedom to living with Jesus. And so what I want to say here at the outset is just what Paul does in the middle of our text is say, you know how God responds to our hypocrisy? You know how God responds to our debauchery? If that's more your thing. God responds with kindness. And Paul uses this very peculiar, beautiful phrase, the riches of God's kindness, as if to say God isn't just a little bit kind. The supply of God's kindness is limitless. And like wave after wave, it crests and crashes upon the shore of our lives. And so no matter where you find yourself on that spectrum, you can bet your life that God is forbearing, that God is long-suffering, that God is patient, and that God's love and kindness is designed to lead you to beginning anew and to finding yourself in that lost coastlines moment of I don't exactly know where to go, but I know that God is good. And that's my prayer for you this morning, is that you would know that God's mercies are new for you today, and that you can bet your life on that. You know, Jesus, in our gospel text, says something that we've probably heard a few times if we've been around church. It is so startling. Jesus says, in the same way that God the Father loved me, think about that, the passionate, perfect love that God the Father has for God the Son, who was his own being, in that same way, with that same zeal and perfection, Jesus loves us. Sinful, wandering, hypocritical, or debauched people. You can bet your life that resting on that Will, will lead you into the good, no matter how disorienting or lost you might feel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.